Hello, it's me, Damien Barr, welcoming you back to the Literary Salon podcast. I hope this finds you well in the hellscape that is the United Kingdom right now. If you're listening from abroad, please don't visit this country or please visit this country and try and take us all away because it's very bad right now. Oh, just had to get that out of my system, whether it makes it to the podcast or not. Anyway, welcome back to the podcast. It's me, Damien Barr, and I am introducing you to a very special interview. This is a woman who I had admired since I was a wee boy. She had a role in Life and Loves of a She-Devil, and even though I didn't understand what that TV programme was about and was far too young to watch it and should not have been watching it, she made an impression on me. And then I knew her as Lady Whiteadder in Blackadder. Again, something I was probably too young to watch, but watched anyway. And now she is an author, memoirist, and I thought, right, let's have her on the salon. She was brilliant on Big Scottish Book Club, so we got her along uh, to the literary salon. And I'm talking, of course, about Miriam Margulies. Now, obviously she's a national treasure. She's one of my very favorite lesbians. And the book could just have been a series of really funny anecdotes, like the ones that she tells on Graham Norton. And they are joyful and there's nothing wrong with them. But actually the book goes much deeper than that. Um, she talks about her family. Um, she talks about her family's experiences of oppression. They're Jewish and she talks about the ways that that history and heritage shapes her um, positively and negatively. So the book is really nuanced and actually the conversation is too. I was really delighted that she opened up and that she was her own true self because, you know, that's what we all need to be doing. And I think Miriam's memoir really sends that message. So anyway... Here is Miriam Margulies reading from her memoir, which is called This Much Is True. Suddenly I am 80. How can that possibly be? 80 is old. 80 means maybe five, maybe ten years left. Where did my life go? There's much I still want to do. What have I learnt? Have I done the best I could? Have I made a difference? Those are the questions that rush at me. I'm writing this book in an attempt to make sense of my life, to take stock. It's been a full, if chaotic, 80 years. I was born in 1941, at the darkest moment of the war. My parents were convinced that Britain was about to lose. Despite this, the Holocaust and its horrors didn't really impinge on my childhood. It's only later I've come to realise how powerfully and inescapably that shadow has become part of my life. Growing up in the post-war period with loving parents, I skipped from moment to moment. I've travelled through every continent bar Antarctica. I've slept with a curious variety of humans. <laughs> <laughs> I entered a precarious profession where a short, fat Jewish girl with no neck <laughs> dared to think she could stand on a stage and be successful. I've completed over 500 jobs and relished every minute of them. But have I merely skimmed the surface? Why do I still feel so unsure about things? 
might a certain level of uncertainty be a good thing? Complete confidence carries smugness alongside, and I do not want that. Smugness shows on stage when you can see a performer admiring their delivery of a certain line. It kills the performance stone dead. It's possible that my insecurity is the very quality that connects me to everyone else. I don't hide my vulnerability. I don't know how. From the beginnings of my coherent existence, a common thread has been the ease with which I could connect with others. Latterly, I found the joy of using that gift to make documentaries and listen to others rather than talking myself. I'm quite sure you picked up this book hoping I'd make you laugh. That's what I seem to have become best known for. I lack the filter others possess, and out of my potty mouth pop filthy sexual anecdotes, <laughs> verbal and physical flatulence on a grand scale. <laughs> I swear, I fart, I draw attention to things best left unremarked, and it seems it's made me popular. Please don't think I'm unaware of my duty to both entertain and shock you. But I won't allow my book to be just dirty talk. Let me tell you the truth about myself, too. When asked, I said I had never made an attempt to write anything down before. This is not entirely true. When I was nine, in 1950, I wrote my autobiography in a large blue book without lines. I wish I could find it, but in one of the many moves of my life, that youthful testament disappeared. Since then, I have simply lived my life to its fullest, until 2020 trapped me in Tuscany for eight months, and I finally had the time to write it. With help from my loyal friends, many of whom have known me for most of that life, I've been piercing things together and teasing out memories from the deepest recesses of my mind. It's been a fascinating process. My partner of 53 years, Heather, finds such spilling out of all one's deepest, most personal thoughts and fears excruciating. <laughs> she said, now don't let this book be like one of your Graham Norton interviews, <laughs> where all you do is talk smut. It's got to be about things that matter, Miriam. Heather is a serious person. <laughs> well, I can't please everyone all the time, but I honour the truth. And within these pages, you will only find truth, or at least my truth. There will be some smut, <laughs> inevitably, <laughs> and it might be a bumpy ride, but I promise you the real Miriam Margulies. Yes! <laughs> and we get the real Mary and Margulies, both barrels, right from the very start. It's absolutely, truly you. Only you could have written this. Um, and you didn't have a ghostwriter either. Very important to, to, to point that out. It is you. Um, the, the, one of the biggest surprises about it is that we meet your family and grow to love them. Um, you know, I think 
when we think of you, we think of the characters that you've played, we think of you as a, as a celebrity, but your family have sort of been, you know, kind of in, in the background. Tell us about them. Tell us about your mum, Ruth, who you describe as a dedicated social climber. <laughs> it's interesting because uh, Moisan was talking about his father, who comes very strongly out of the pages of his book. And out of my book, it is my mother who stands, I think, supreme. Mm. She was uh, born in Liverpool in 1905. Her father, my grandfather, was a, a second-hand furniture salesman who described himself as an auctioneer. Um, he was extraordinarily charming. He, he was devastatingly charming. And my cousin Ethel told me that he screwed everything that moved. Um, we didn't know that at the time, of course. My mother inherited that charm. And mm. I've inherited that charm, too. I know I'm charming. Um, <laughs> but um, it, it, it's just something that goes with the territory, because it, it was with my mother. Um, she was a, a stout woman when I remember her but as a young woman she'd been a dancer amateur but she loved art she loved mm. singing and dancing and elocution and poetry and she would have liked to have gone on the stage she was also very shrewd she had I think it's called street smart she wasn't educated she left school at 15, 14 mm. and s served in her sister's dress shop and uh, I think, you know, when you're in retail, you know the world. I just think that's mm. something that, uh, that goes with that. And um, she was very conventional in some ways and very unconventional in others. As I describe in my book, she used to do the housework in the nude. <laughs> and um, I just accepted it. Um, <laughs> The au pair girls were alarmed at first. <laughs> <laughs> um, Did you inherit that as well from your mother? Do you do, you do the housework in the nude? Or you I don't, don't do, do housework. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Of course um, not. And, um, but she, she, wanted, she wanted more always than she had. Mm. And she was determined after... The war. My my um, my parents married in 1930. Mummy was frightened of childbirth, so they didn't have any children till they had me, eleven years after they were married. <coughs> and um, yes, I might have a sip. And um, she she thought she might die in childbirth, and. It took um, an air raid to allow Daddy in. Um, <coughs> so um, she only had one child, and the house was completely bombed, a direct hit. And um, they moved to Oxford because they thought that was safe. It yeah. was generally assumed that it wouldn't be bombed because Hitler had wanted to put his new um, government in Oxford. And um, I grew up in that intensely competitive, rarefied atmosphere 
of the premier university town of England and possibly the world. Mm. And my parents were absolutely determined that I had to go to university. Because mummy said to me, I want you to be able to talk to anybody about anything. Mm. She felt that she couldn't do that. She had the charm to connect to people, mm. but she felt her lack of education held her back. So she started to make money um, buying houses and letting them to students at the university. And we had some powerful students. We had Jacob Rothschild. Mummy had this dream that he would come home, see this pudgy schoolgirl, <laughs> fall instantly in love with her. <laughs> I would, be, I would be Lady Rothschild. Well, ain't going to happen, Mama. Um, Hate to tell you. <laughs> um, so they, they paid for me to go to the Oxford High School, mm. which I do believe is the best school in the country. Well, it was then. Uh, all the children were daughters. It was a single-sex school of uh, university dons. And mummy admired them, and so did my father, who was a GP. And there's something so sweet and vulnerable about admiring professors. Mm. Because once you get into that world, you know they're just a scummy lot, really. <laughs> Not all of them, of course, but there are some very nasty people mm. in a university. And mummy said, I want you to be with the best people. Mm. She didn't really know what the best people were, yeah. but she thought it was somewhere that she wasn't. Anyway, um, my father was the doctor to Isaiah Berlin, who was a, a very important professor at that time. And she had the brilliant idea of, of asking Daddy to ask him to supper with us. And she would cook him a delicious Jewish meal, because she was a very good cook. And then she said, um, Isaiah, I want you to sponsor my daughter Miriam here uh, for university. Because somehow she knew, and I don't know how, that no university in the world would refuse somebody who was sponsored by Isaiah Berlin. It was just <laughs> inevitable that yeah. I would get in. And so I got into Oxford and I got into Cambridge and I won a small scholarship at, at at Cambridge and I went there yeah and that's where I had a wonderful time and not where my life really started not all not always entirely wonderful I mean you recount some of the some of the experiences you had with some of the yes. particularly some of the men in footlights um, John Cleese um, comes in for particular criticism I think Tim Brooke Taylor um, so you, you definitely encounter sexism and, and anti-semitism when when you when when you're there well that was because the footlights was a very competitive club to which women were not admitted at that time and it it was it comprised very narrow narrowly experienced misogynistic anti-semitic nasty minor public school boys mm. and um john cleese was a prime example um <laughs> and uh i i was asked to audition for the review that they do every year and I got in, so I was the only girl in a, in a cast of, of seven men, uh, among whom was John and um, Graham Chapman. And um, now I don't think Bill Oddie was actually in that year, but uh, Tim Brooke Taylor was, who later apologized and was lovely, so I've forgiven him. But um, 
it, it was a horrible experience because during the run of the of the review, uh, nobody would speak to me off stage. So I would be doing sketches with them, getting lots of applause and laughter, mm. and and doing quite a good job. But once I went into the wings, I was blanked. Oh. I was sent to Coventry, and it's a long time ago. And I know I should have forgotten it. I haven't, mm. um, and I bear the the scars of it in a way. And as a result, I don't really like comedy. So I didn't. I didn't go in that direction. When mm. I left university, I, I became a, a radio actress, actually. Yeah, at the BBC, partly. At the BBC, yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the things you recollect is your experience of joining a group called the Gay Yeds and wearing a badge that said Gay Yeds to the BBC in the 1960s. <laughs> and I was just completely thrilled by that. Wait, do you remember what it felt like when you were wearing the badge walking in? Did you feel nervous? Did you think they'd even understand? No, I thought it was wonderful. <laughs> I, I loved it. I wore it proudly um, because I thought it would call attention to me. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. More than I any. was just a show off. And, and, you know, I was using uh, lesbianism as a tool. <laughs> <laughs> if one could use it in that way. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, I had a very good career at, at Cambridge. I, I did well. Yeah. And it was there that I decided I wanted to be an actress. And so I, I went into radio and then onto, into television and onto the stage. And I never thought I would ever be in films. That never occurred to me, but it, really? did, it did so happen. I, I won um, the LA Critics Circle Supporting Actress in, I think, 1986 uh, for Little Dorrit. I played Flora Finching, a marvelous character, one of the 2000 that Charles Dickens created. And um, I was told when I came here, actually, that he was one of the founders of the London Library. Yeah. So just being here is a, is a thrill. Yeah. Yeah, he wrote here and I'm sure that they could hand you a few of his first editions to handbag um, as, <laughs> no, as, you, as, as you go. What was it? Um, LA doesn't come out of the book incredibly well. You sort of well, it's a silly place. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, uh, people are afraid of failure mm. and I think that's so silly. And I I met some wonderful people too, of course, mm. but generally speaking, it's it is all about success, mm. and that is very def defiling and deforming. Mm. And I have escaped from that, mm. and I'm much more my own person. I I was um, going to do well. I I did a a series called Franny's Turn for CBS. It it was taken off after five episodes because it wasn't very good. Uh, I was brilliant, but it wasn't very good. Um, and, no, that's, that's absolutely true. Uh, and and um, everybody said to me, uh, you know, when this goes out, you're going to be so famous and you're going to be so rich. Your whole life is going to change. You know, you're, you're just, you can't even imagine what's going to happen to you. And I thought, oh, poo, I don't believe any of that. And, and I was right. <laughs> uh, early in the book, you say, I decided very early on in life that the strongest position was to be completely open. What prompted that decision for you and have you ever regretted it? Well, I think when you're not beautiful, 
as a woman, you know that you've got to find another strategy to get ahead. Uh, I was always ambitious and probably innately competitive, although I, I try not to be now because I don't think it's good for you. Mm. But um, I realized that I had another string. I didn't have beauty, um, but I had a, a charm and a wit. And I decided to go down that route, mm. using my personality um, to get what I wanted. Mm. It doesn't always work, and it isn't particularly to be praised, but we all have to, we all have to find our coping strategies, how to, how to make the world work for us. Mm. And that was mine. Mm. Um, I was wanting to talk to you about coming out and the process. I know, you always want to talk about that. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm, fasc I'm fascinated by it. Um, <laughs> when you were at the BBC, were you out when you were doing your radio dramas? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think when you're young, uh, sex is, is, it can be very worrying and alarming. But once you know where you're going, um, it's enormous fun and it's fun to talk about and share. And people at, at, at that time didn't do that very much. Right. Now people talk about, you know, techniques and labia and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but um, in those days, uh, such a discussion was unusual. And um, I, it, it gave me a, a certain prominence. So I used it yeah. and I enjoyed it. And liberated people with it. I, I believe so. Yes, yeah. I do. Yeah. Coming out, uh, I was, of course, moved and fascinated by Moisten's account uh, of, of his moment of truth with his parents. Mm. Mine was, was um, rather, in a way, more distressing, I think, because my parents were orthodox Jews, not, not madly orthodox, but just ordinarily so. And the very idea of lesbianism was completely revolting to them. Mm. And so I told my mother first, because I always told my mother everything, because she said I had to, mm. and I did. Mm. And she told my father, and he said, come into the drawing room. And he had a copy of the Bible. And he said, you will swear on the Bible that you will never sleep with a woman again. And I, I did swear it, but I knew that I was going to break that vow. I knew it, but mm. I didn't have the courage to tell them that I wouldn't keep to it, and I didn't. And I regret that I had told my parents. Um, I feel that there are some things that people can't cope with, mm. and my parents couldn't cope with that information. It, I destroyed their hopes. And that's a very terrible thing to do to anyone, to take their hope away. And they thought they had given birth to this e exceptional young woman with wonderful eyes and a lovely laugh and the capacity to make friends and that kind of thing. And in one stroke, I had taken it all away. And I would be destined to a life of bestiality mm. and loneliness. And of course, they were really not ever happy again. Mm. Well, they were also wrong because that's not the life that 
that's not the life that you had. I mean, I think you told them about, you know, homosexuality, to use that word, and what they heard or saw was homophobia. And I think that's so often the case for people, um, uh, you know, that, you know, this is not the life I want for you. And it's like, well, this is not the life I want for me either. The life you're imagining is a life of hatred because you see that rather than the love that, that you have in yourself. I mean, at that time, I think, had you met Heather? No, you hadn't no, I haven't. I, I, I was seduced, thank God, in... Um, in Leicester. Oh God! And, um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's ever been said before in all in all of history and human time. I was seduced in Leicester. That can be volume two. Well, it was in uh, it was in 1966. So if I was born in 41, how old was I then? Somebody else can do the math. 25. 25. Okay. Well, I was 25, and. I'd never slept with anybody. And I joined the theatre company in Leicester. I came up to do some plays. And the stage manager was a burly girl um, whom I found e extremely attractive because she was so lonely. And I just wanted to sort of cheer her up and talk to her. And we talked a lot after rehearsals. And one, one night we went home after rehearsals and that's when she seduced me. And I remember when she was sort of, you know, um, tonguing me or something, she said, um, I said to her in wonderment, is this sex? <laughs> well, by God, it was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she just popped up and went, yes. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think she may, it was tonguing me downstairs. Oh, oh God, oh, sorry. <laughs> I just assumed. I know. <laughs> I know. They always do. <laughs> oh, God. I'm a little bit hot now. A little bit, a little bit hot. Um, yeah, we were. On this, I wasn't the only person that thought that. Good, thank you. What was the process of, of writing this like? Not the process of the licking out. Oh. The process of like, because you, you, you list many of the lovers and many of the chance encounters, and maybe there are some that you've forgotten. I don't know, but it's not There's it's a not few exhaustive. that I didn't tell because the wives are alive. The wives of the, the women or the, the wives of the no, men? No, the wives of the men. Yeah. Um, because uh, I'm... You know, people have an idea of what lesbians are, are like or what they sh should be like. And, you know, some are and some aren't. But I have always cocksucked because it was um, easy, you know, and it didn't bother me. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't feel involved. It, I just got on with it and that was it. Um, Do you think you were good at it? I hope so. <laughs> Yes, I think so. I, I actually think that it, it, it made going to the dentist quite difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know these lateral flow tests so a <laughs> bit of a nightmare for me now. <laughs> <laughs> but in the 60s, you could have taken 10 at a time. It would have been fine. It would have been fine. Um, there, is a, there is a lot of cocksucking in the book. And at, at one point, I was, think, I was thinking to myself, you know, the self-described lesbian. What, was that, what, what did that do for you? 
because um, you weren't particularly interested, in, you, weren't, you weren't enjoying it, you, you don't seem to, you enjoy the giving of satisfaction, it seems to me, more than anything. Um, is that what it was about for you? I, do, I don't know what it was about. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't examined myself uh, deeply on, the, on that subject. It's just when you, f when you are young and you have strong sexual feelings yeah. and you know that you can't sleep with a man because your mother told you you mustn't. Uh, what do you do? Right. You have to do something, and and wanking simply isn't enough. It ha you you know you have to be involved with a person, mm. and men liked it, and that was lovely because it made me happy and it made mm. them happy. And nobody seemed to mind, and I think some of my best writing is actually talking about that. Yeah. Um, but you asked about the process of writing. Shall yeah. we get back yeah, to yeah, that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> You men, you're all the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I was invited by a, a publisher to, um, to write an autobiography. Mm. And I was offered an astonishing amount of money uh, to do it. And, mm. I th and I did it for the money. I never, <laughs> I never expected to do it. And I, and I was a bit surprised that anybody would be wanting it. But um, it happened to be during COVID time. Yeah. And I was in Italy um, trying to hide from COVID. Mm. And um, my publisher, um, my, my editor, I think really I should say, was the, um, was the person who had this idea of how to do it. And she said, we'll, we'll do it by Zoom. And um, I and another um, editor will we'll ask you lots of questions and we'll record your answers mm. and we'll send the answers to a typist and she'll type up what was recorded and then we'll send you an edited version of, mm. of what, what you've said and you work from there and that's how I did it. So I, they, they sent it to me on computer and, and they said, you know, expand this bit, tell more about that side, yeah. what was Hollywood like, describe some of the people. Mm. Um, what was schooled, you, you know, and or they would say, no, there's too much about that, cut that bit. Mm. So they guided me tremendously, mm. um, but the words uh, that came out, I am responsible for. Had you really never written before since the, since the book when you were little? No, I, I'd written uh, with Sonia Fraser, who was yeah. a, a, an actress and director friend of mine. Uh, I'd written an, an evening about Charles Dickens called Dickens Women, mm. and I, I did, I acted that as a one-person show really, mm. but that was, that was all. I hadn't done a a book really. Um, later on in the book, you say that you haven't mellowed as you've got older; you've billowed, and I think it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant expression. W was this book a way for you to to put some of those feelings down? I just want to clarify your vowels. <laughs> Oh because God. your diction is is um, obviously affected by where you come from. Um, <laughs> um, I said I haven't mellowed, I've billowed, not bellowed. Did anybody thought I said bellowed? Yes. I should have had your elocution teacher as a child. Well, I'm going to say you have mellowed, you have billowed. Billowed. Like pillow. Yep. Okay. You see, a vowel is desperately important sometimes.
bellowed. 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 And yes, I think I have. Yeah. I think I have. I'm. I'm um, trying to be. Uh, trying to be calmer. I'm trying to, to right. not to to, be, to get so angry. But when I think about the world I live in and the world that England has become and what has happened to the people in England mm. and what has happened to the government, I feel an overwhelming, uh, uncontrollable rage. Mm. And so, and I can't understand why everybody doesn't feel like mm. that actually. Mm. And so I'm trying to moderate that because rage is not palatable and rage is not always useful. Mm. And I want to change things. And I think I have to, you have to go a little bit more calmly than is my natural won't. What do you want to change? The government. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely no rage there whatsoever at all. Absolutely no rage. Um, The government and then? And then work towards a kinder attitude to immigrants. Mm. And um, I don't know, you call them boat people, but there, there is an appalling acceptance, do you not think, mm, yeah. of the recent deaths of these poor, poor people mm. who come from ghastly situations. Mm. And so what if they wanted a better life? Mm. So what if they're economic migrants? Mm. What the fuck is wrong with that? Mm. We all want to better ourselves. We all want to earn more money. And my goodness, the government is feathering its own nest in a peculiarly revolting way. Um, I I was so shocked and distressed by those pictures and the knowledge that Mm. this is a daily occurrence. Mm. Um, And the the attitude of some people towards them. I mean, I... I was born during the war in 41, and I never forget that. I never forget that in the year of my birth, the the town where my father's grandfather lived and his father came from was overrun by the Nazis, and every single Jew was murdered in that village. It's something you, you don't forget. And that kind of horror is visited not just upon Jews, but upon humans all over yeah. in every country. And it, we have to try to stop that. Mm. You know, we're all worried about the, the climate change. I want to see a human change as well. Uh, so some questions from Miriam here and questions also from you in the room, so get those ready. Um, now you've written this, have you got any intentions for more? Your editor's in the front row, no pressure. Also, have you got any more money? Because that was sounded like quite a lot. An- another book? Anything? I, I, I am going to write another book, yes. Oh, yay! She's thrilled! Yeah! You've got a contract there, have you? Not novel, memoir, something oh, no, else? Not manifesto, novel, not a Miriam's novel. manifesto? No, I'm working out what it's going to be. It right. won't be a novel. I can't deal in novels. I'm not into that. Okay, okay. 
There's no need to say it quite like that. It was sort of, sort of, sort of like furious. I, I, I have also been asked to write a children's book, and I'm going to. I'm not going to tell you the title, but I have got a brilliant title. And if, <laughs> if, if I can get a book as, as, as good as the title, I'll be all right. Um, you've been vocal about your worries about Brexit. If you could say something to David Cameron about it, what would it be? I don't want to speak to David Cameron. Okay. I have nothing to say to him. Seems reasonable. Um, are there any roles that you've turned down that you later regretted? Yes, yes, there are. I think particularly many, many years ago, um, there, was a, there was a play that went to the Edinburgh Festival, uh, The Fringe. I can't remember anything about it, but um, <laughs> afterwards, I thought I should have done that. It would have been good for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why everybody laughs. That's, that's what's so funny. I don't know. All right, questions for Miriam in the room. Yes, here. Um, actually, Miriam, this is Are you a letter writer? Well, I'm an email writer. Um, I used to write letters, but I, I don't write them except to Prince Charles. <laughs> I'm, I'm embarrassed, in a way, as a socialist, to say that I love Prince Charles, and um, he writes to me and I write to him. <laughs> Oh my God, that correspondence has got to be golden. What, I mean, you can't say obviously. Is I don't think it's fair to talk about no, what, no. What, what, what I write or what he writes, but um, he is a thoughtful man. Okay. Um, any other, yes, question over there. Hiya. Hi, I just wondered if you worried your potty mouth will stop you becoming a, a dame as a socialist, would you be bothered about that? Oh, that's interesting. Will your potty mouth stop you becoming a dame and as a socialist, are you bothered about being Dame Miriam of Margulies? <laughs> Well, the, the first uh, part of your question, it is not to me that you should address that question. So I don't know whether it will stop me or not. Uh, if I was offered it, I'd certainly take it. And at the same time, I would say I disapprove of what I've done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Marion Margulies! <laughs> That was Mary Margulies reading from her memoir, This Much Is True, in conversation with me at the London Library in December 2021. What a night it was. It was in all the papers the next day because of some of the stuff she said about the government. Miriam was and is terrific and you can get the book on our bookshop on bookshop.org. So thank you for listening to me and Miriam. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any new episodes. We bring a new reading to you every week. There are hundreds of interviews and readings on our podcast and I hope you enjoy them all and please do share them with your pals. Take good care and thanks for listening. Thank you.